Please be seated. Thank you, praise team. Thank you for leading us in the praise of our great God, Lance and Bethany Bible Church. Thank you for hosting us tonight. I kept standing there thinking, I just want to get up there and say this. Jesus Christ is Lord! And if you believe that, say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord! Amen! And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're going to heaven, brothers and sisters. Praise God. He's so good to us. Turn with me tonight to the book of Proverbs. And as you're turning to this wonderful book that I love so much, I want to begin this evening with one simple question. Are you ready? Here's my question. What do you fear? What do you fear? What brings you panic? Nervousness, dread, trepidation, what keeps you up at night? What gets you up in the middle of the night? What alarms you? What makes your mouth dry? What frightens you? What makes you want to flee? Run! As human beings, we have so many different kinds of fears. I'm going to say them and some of you are going to start to shake a little bit. Fears of mice. Fears of clowns. I don't get that one. It's just strange. Fears of spiders. Yep, my six foot four inch tall son, James. That's him. Fear of dying. Fear of the government. Yeah. Fear of heights. Fear of snakes. Fear of dogs. Fear of small places. Claustrophobia. That's me. Hour and a half. MRI. I'm so glad my wife was in there with me. (laughs) Fear of germs. Okay, I guess that one too. Fear of flying. Fear of cancer. Fear of public speaking. Number one fear in the United States. That's why I'm a plumber and I've committed never to speak in public. Fear of people, right? Fear is a common emotion. We've all experienced it, every one of us. Maybe recently, maybe this morning, maybe this afternoon. The fear of being rejected, the fear of losing everything, the fear of growing old, the fear of losing your health. Fear takes so many forms, and we've encountered so many of them. And we can praise God that actually Scripture has so much to say about fear. It does. But I want you to understand up front this evening that not all fear is the same, and they're not all on an equal level. Scripture talks about fear in two major categories. First, and most importantly, there is the fear of the Lord. And then secondly, there is the fear of everything else. The fear of the Lord and the fear of everything else. And Scripture tells us to reject all fears of that second kind in favor of the fear of the first kind, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is good. It's desirable. It is a fear that is commanded, which we must have. And it will enable us to stand up to all the other fears, all those fears and more that I listed off for you, to courageously face them with our eyes on our infinite, all-glorious God. And the fear of God dispels all those other fears. God the Father, who saved us through God the Son, and who has given us God the Holy Spirit. 
Now here's how the Bible speaks then about our fears in light of our wonderful almighty Lord. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. It is this preeminent fear, the fear of the Lord, that we want to understand tonight. It's just an introduction, okay? So let me say that. You're not going to come out of here exhaustively understanding the fear of the Lord. I may exhaust you, okay? I'm trying not to. But this is, if you want to give it a title, Introduction to Proverbs and the Fear of the Lord. We're introducing Proverbs and we're introducing you to the fear of the Lord in that study. It is a lifelong study. Jesus, our great God and Savior, died us to transform us into people who fear the Lord, who have a holy reverence and worshiping submission to the master of the universe. And so I pray tonight you'll be stirred up, you'll be encouraged, you'll be comforted this evening as you grasp the significance and practical relevance of the fear of the Lord. Interestingly enough, our text is Proverbs 1-7. And you just read what I'm about to read again. So you know what? If something is worth saying and reading, it's worth saying and reading again, right? The gospel is worth repeating again and again and again. God's word is always worth reading again and again. So I want to read for you Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. And we'll, we'll establish then the context of verse 7 and the fear of the Lord. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a riddle, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now it always helps when the author of a book gives us its purpose. Why is the book of Proverbs written? The purpose of Proverbs is given in verses 1 to 6. Now, before I give you the purpose of Proverbs, let me tell you a little about this book tonight because we're kicking off, as you just heard, a new series for our combined church services in the months ahead. So let's just give a brief introduction to the book of Proverbs. Who wrote it? Well, mostly Solomon, mostly. He authored chapters one to nine and then another section, chapter 10 to 22, 16. And Solomon probably compiled the sayings of the wise in chapter 22, 17 to chapter 24, 34. Chapters 25 to 29 were originally written by Solomon, but they were copied and included later by King Hezekiah. You remember Solomon wrote over 3,000 proverbs. Chapters 30 and 31 come from Agur and Lemuel the king. Who are they? Heaven. We'll find out in heaven, I don't know, right? Probably not beforehand. But the primary author, is Solomon. Now, who was Solomon? Well, six quick facts about him. He was king of Israel after his father, David. You can read that in 2 Kings chapter 2, 10 to 12, this whole uh, ascension to the throne. And his request of Yahweh was for what? Remember? Wisdom. He said, I'm just a child. How can I take the place of my father and rule in his place and follow in his footsteps? I'm just a child. 
And so he asks God for wisdom, 2 Kings 3, 3 through 9. And Yahweh generously grants wisdom to Solomon so that he is truly the wisest man in all of history prior to the Lord Jesus. 2 Kings 3, 10 to 15. Remember James 1 to 5? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And Solomon is an Old Testament example of that. And then you remember, right away, you get this evidence of Solomon's wisdom. Two women claiming the same baby, right? Now, do you ever put yourself in biblical scenarios and you think, what would I say? Okay, I'm the king. I have to make a judgment. Two women come and they both say that that baby belongs to to them. This is my baby. No, it's my baby. What does Solomon say? Get me a sword. What are you going to do? Cut the baby in half and give half to each mother. That's equitable. Share. That's horrible. So the one woman who's not the mother says, yeah, do it. And the, the real mother says, no, you know, give the baby to her. That's my baby. I don't want my baby cut in half. Everyone says, wow. What does Solomon conclude? Give the baby to her. She's the mother. The other lady doesn't care about the baby. And everyone thinks, wow, that is the wisdom of God. Right, And when you see the wisdom of God, when you see wisdom, it, it's kind of amazing. I remember this story of this little boy who locked himself in a bathroom and the mom for hours trying to get him out calls the fire department. A firefighter comes to the door, knocks on the door and says, little girl, come out. The boy opens the door and says, I'm not a girl. <laughs> see, that's wisdom, right? And when you see things like that, you say, Wow. Okay, I'm impressed. Solomon was very impressive. He had a worldwide reputation and output. He authored Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Interestingly enough, he authored two Psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, one of my all-time favorites. As you can see, I have nine kids. Okay, now what else can you tell me about Proverbs? Well, the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters. It's not the longest Old Testament book at 31 chapters. The longest is the book of Psalms, 150. Isaiah has 66. Jeremiah, I'm just reading Jeremiah 52. But Proverbs isn't the shortest either. That goes to Obadiah at one chapter. And it's classified among the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Why was it written? Finally, this guy is so slow. He tells us he's going to tell us the purposes, and three pages later he gets to it. Proverbs 1, 1 to 6 gives the two purposes. Proverbs was written by Solomon to give you first, skillful living. That's wisdom. What is wisdom? Skillful living. He's writing to give us skillful living. Skillful living. And secondly, to give you discernment. Instruction that helps you in wise behavior so you can make good plans in life to understand and take the right and the best course to gain the right goals. Moral skillfulness and mental discernment. Moral skillfulness, mental discernment. Sign me up. Where do I begin? Ah, you see, that's the question. Where do I begin? And the answer then is in verse seven. All the prior verses build to verse seven. It is the summit. It is the highest peak. It is the top note. Verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Listen also to Proverbs chapter nine. The fear of the Lord, this is verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom 
and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord, the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. We need the fear of the Lord. That is the means to knowledge and wisdom, but it is also a higher end to be pursued for its own sake. And so we better understand the fear of the Lord so that we can zealously seek its acquisition. And to do that, we need to begin with the other side of the coin. So if you're taking notes tonight, one more time, this is the introduction to Proverbs and the fear of the Lord. And if you're taking notes, here's letter A. The neglect of the fear of the Lord. The neglect of the fear of the Lord. You see, though we need to fear the Lord, we as humans do not naturally do so because we're sinful, we're rebellious, we're God-haters. We are actually inventors of evil from birth. We don't fear God. We need the new birth. We need the supernatural work of the Spirit and regeneration. We need salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus. In Proverbs chapter one, notice this in the second line of verse seven. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now verse seven is an example of what is called antithetical parallelism. It's a parallel contrast between the first line and its opposite in the second line. Fools hate. They despise wisdom and instruction. And so they reject the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. Those who fear the Lord, they gain knowledge and they love wisdom and instruction. And so you see how the thinking goes with antithetical parallelism. Now what is knowledge here in verse 7? Well, Derek Kidner so instructively answers that in its full sense, knowledge is a relationship. It's knowledge of God. It's knowing the Lord personally and intimately. It's a knowledge of the Holy One that's mentioned in chapter 9, verse 10. Now, where do you get that knowledge? Well, it's given by God's self-revelation in Scripture. All that is rejected and neglected by the fool. So verse seven, like so many other passages of scripture, it gives only two options. Either you fear the Lord or you're a fool. See that? There's no middle ground. Do you fear the Lord? Yes, praise God. Do you fear the Lord? No, you're a fool. That's it. No middle ground, no other option. I want letter C. I want D, all of the above. No, you can't do that. Now, if you say this evening that you don't want to fear God, you want to just kind of be left alone, you kind of want to just keep going as you are, unconcerned about a relationship with God in Christ, well then, you are a fool. See, there's no way to say that nicer. It's true, you're a fool. I'm not going to dress this up. Solomon doesn't. And the Bible has nothing nice and comforting to say to the fool if he's going to remain in his foolishness. You see, fools are not neutral. They're not neutral. They're not riding the fence. Despise, in verse 7, it points to a contempt, a rejection, a refusal of God, a refusal of his wisdom. They're not riding the fence. They're not neutral. They've made their choice. For those who despise a relationship with God through Christ, you can expect only to continually crash and burn in this life. You're gonna take one stumble after another stumble after another stumble, and then after all of that, 
hell will await you in the next life. See how pretty that is and how wonderful and how attractive a life that is? No, it's horrible. Let me give you some verses from God's word which describe the wicked unbeliever, the fool. First of all, they will only know calamity and dread, says Proverbs 1 later in the chapter. And why? Well, 129, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. How does scripture describe unbelievers? Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember that section where Paul's building his case? Gentiles are all under sin, chapter 1 of Romans. Jews are all under sin, chapter 2 of Romans, chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all under sin. No one is good, no, not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36.1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. You know what, though? Jesus, who is God and knows better, he says to non-Christians that they should fear God. They should fear God more than any human. They should fear God ultimately. Listen to how Jesus speaks in Luke 12, 4 and 5. I say to you, my friends... Do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. You ever think about that? What's the worst they can do to us as Christians? Well, they could come into the assembly tonight and they could kill us all. And that's the best thing they could do to us, right? The worst thing is the best thing because then we just go to be with the Lord and to depart and be with Christ is far better, says Paul. So Jesus says, you know, after that, they have no more that they can do after they kill you. Listen to what Jesus says. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear God. Because he's not done with you when he takes your life and takes you out of this planet. Then you go to hell. Then you go to an eternal existence under the wrath of God, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I say to you this evening, if you are the fool that I've just described, then humble yourself before God and call on the Lord Jesus to save you. That's your only hope. Otherwise, there's nothing good that Scripture says to the fool. And there is no other hope for you. Okay, so that's the neglect of the fear of the Lord, but let's move to a better topic, letter B, the nature of the fear of the Lord. The nature of the fear of the Lord. Let me say this first of all. The fear of the Lord is overwhelmingly positive. Even though it initially sounds negative, we hear fear and we think, that that can't be a good thing. Well, it is a good thing. And this is one of the greatest heart attitudes to cultivate and certainly one of the strongest incentives for your walk with Christ and your spiritual life And that's why famous theologian John Murray referred to the fear of the Lord as the soul of godliness. You hear that? The soul of godliness. Well, what is it then? Well, first, let's see what it is not. Let me quote for you 1 John 4, 16 to 18, and that'll help clarify our understanding. John says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. Wait a minute. I thought you said there's a fear of the Lord. But now you're saying we don't fear because of love. See, we, we got to use our brains as Christians, don't we? I mean, when you interpret scripture, you got to pray and you got to humble yourself and you got to think, right? We love God because he first loved us in Christ. And as a result, we have confidence before God, not self-confidence, but confidence in Christ and all God our Father has done for us in and through Christ. For us, forgiveness, justification, adoption, and inheritance with all the saints in light. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us Jesus as the ultimate gift. And so we look ahead to Christ's return. And we look ahead to the return of Christ, not with cringing fear. What's going to happen when I see Jesus? Well, no believer is going to wonder at what's going to happen when we see Jesus. We're going to marvel at him, and he's going to take us to be with him forever. Our citizenship is in heaven. So there's not this cringing fear. We look ahead with expectation. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, my citizenship is in heaven. When I see Jesus, he's going to transform this humble body I am a specimen of a humble body standing before you. It is aging and wearing out and getting bigger, by the way, but I'm working at that. Okay, but all the while, he is gonna, when he comes, transform this humble body into conformity with his glorious body. Expectation of glorification. The fullness of our future as citizens of heaven. So the fear of the Lord does not involve fear of future punishment. We're not gonna be judged, condemned, cast into hell When we see Jesus, that's for the fool, the unrepentant fool. We're forgiven in Christ. We are loved and adopted. We're clothed in Christ. We're joined to Christ. Christ is our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is a propitiation for our sins. He paid their price. He satisfied God's just demands. God's wrath is now turned away from us through faith in Christ. We stand in grace. I'm preaching through Romans. I love the book. I love it. So God, our Father's love in Christ, casts out this cringing fear. That is not the fear of the Lord that we should have. Though unbelievers should fear God's future wrath and judgment for their rebellion and their rejection of Christ, that's not us. Well then, what is our fear like as Christians? And the answer is this wonderful passage in Hebrews 12, and I want you to go there. Hebrews chapter 12. We only have till like nine, right? I'm looking at the clock back there. Okay. What is this fear like? Hebrews 12, uh, 3 through 29. We do not fear God our fathers, condemning judgment and punishment. No, because of Christ, the last point. But we have such an awe and reverence for our holy God that we fear displeasing him. We fear sinning against him. We fear his chastening. Oh, yes. Because he loves us, his spiritual spanking as a loving heavenly father I want you to see that in this passage. Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 11. Can't wait to get to heaven. I'm going to find out who wrote Hebrews. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's how he shows his love. And then this next line, wow, he scourges every son whom he receives. Are you his child? Expect the spankings that will train you. God trains us through painful trials, through chastening. He will do whatever it takes to make us like Jesus Christ. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Raise your hand if that applies to you. Oh, yeah. Dad with seven boys. That was me. Earthly fathers to discipline us. I can still hear the screaming coming down the hall as he made his way room by room to Jim and me, right? Jim would start crying as soon as dad walked in the room. He'd get out of it, you know, not me. We respected them. Oh, you didn't want to mess with my dad. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So then we don't dread being with God. We're not paralyzed so that we can't function, but God is not our big buddy either, right? We fear taking him for granted. We fear displeasing him. We take God very seriously. We take God more seriously than anyone or anything in our lives, right? We're not casual toward God or cavalier or trivial or trite. There's respect and awe and even, yes, as you see here, this fear of chastening. And further, our fear of God our Father brings a recognition that we're small, we're puny, we're insignificant, we're sinful, but he, on the other hand, is the glorious creator of the universe who just spoke it into existence out of nothing. And so we stand in awe, and we have trembling in our soul before him. We kneel in adoration, we bow in humility, and seeing God rightly in Christ then brings a seriousness of mind, a soberness, humility, worship, submission. Notice now in chapter 12 of Hebrews, verses 18 to 29, I'm going to read the whole thing. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. And they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. This is a description of Sinai. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, thousands upon ten thousands of angels attend him. Think about that. If you and I saw just one of them, I think I know what we would do. We would fall down before an angel to worship. And if you say, not me, well then you're more spiritual than John because John does it twice in the book of Revelation. That's how glorious just the angels are and there are thousands upon ten thousands of them around God right now as we're gathered. Myriads of angels around him. 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire, reverence, awe, a trembling of soul, a holy fear. In Christ we have encountered God the Lord, someone way beyond us, infinitely holy, infinitely powerful, almighty. Someone way beyond this universe, someone way beyond all of it. John Piper gives an illustration to help us understand the fear of the Lord. He says, imagine you're exploring an Arctic glacier and you're surprisingly caught in a storm, so strong you fear that you'll be blown right off a cliff. But then you see a crevice in the ice. You hide there and you're sheltered. Even though you're now safe, you watch that storm go by with a kind of trembling pleasure. He writes, at first there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life, but then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe, but not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such power. The fear of God is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Do you get that? A safe place to watch right in the middle of it. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. Amen. Amen. That's right. Amen. And perhaps you're seeing tonight that your God is too small compared to the true God, the real God, as he reveals himself in Christ, in the scriptures. What is it to fear him? Listen to how Charles Bridges defines the fear of the Lord. It is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. So I acknowledge then that God is Lord and creator. I'm his lowly, puny, sinful creature. But my heart delights in him and worships him as my father through Christ. And I delight to be his child And it is the reverential awe, the respectful fear of the child with his infinite father. And we respect and we obey what our heavenly father says. We want to please him and not sin against him lest we invite his loving and holy chastening upon us. And we know we're accountable to the Lord and will one day give an account of our life to him.
And so listen to that familiar passage, 1 Peter 1.17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Okay, so that's the nature of the fear of the Lord. Let's move to letter C. If you're taking notes, the necessity, the necessity of the fear of the Lord. The neglect, the nature, and now the necessity. And that's back to Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Until you fear the Lord, you have no true knowledge. I don't care how many degrees you have or how well educated you are. The beginning here refers to the first and the controlling principle. It isn't a stage you get through and leave behind. The fear of the Lord is this worshiping, reverential submission to the Lord, and he's revealed himself by name, Yahweh. So then, the fear of the Lord is the chief thing. It's foundational. It's fundamental to knowledge. Imagine, can people have knowledge who reject God? No. No. You begin here, and you continue here. And knowledge here, to say it again, it's not primarily math and science and engineering and athletics, working on your car or your house or in the garden. To repeat, knowledge in its full sense is a relationship. It is knowledge of God. It's knowing God relationally and intimately. It's humbling yourself and entering into a love relationship with God through Christ. And if you don't fear God, you don't even know him. We saw that in our last major point, the neglect of the fear of the Lord. So listen again to Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Contrast that with Job 21, 14. They, that is the wicked, say to God, depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. See the contrast? We don't want you. We don't want your ways. So now remember, you don't merely begin with the fear of the Lord and then move on. No, you never take a day off from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 27, 23, 17. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Always. You never move beyond it. You grow in it. In fact, to boil it all down, the fear of the Lord is the beginning step. It's every step along the way, and it's the conclusion, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. Well, maybe you say, isn't that primarily something in the Old Testament that's not really for us as Christians in the New Testament? I say, wrong. Hebrews 12, 1 Peter 1, 17. I already mentioned those. But here's another passage that should be familiar to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Listen, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the Christian life. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In the book of Acts, I want you to go on a quick little journey with me. Start in Acts chapter 2. We're familiar with that chapter, the birthday of the church, and the signs and wonders that the Lord worked through the apostles. And after all is said and done, 3,000 come to Christ, 
And then you read in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, fabas, fear. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And then turn over to Acts chapter 5, and I want you to see fear, this fear of the Lord in the life of the church. Acts 5, 5. Ananias and Sapphira, who were slain in the spirit, literally. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then in verses 11 to 13, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. Really, that's not a church growth model being promoted today, is it? Not at all. We say, you know, make people comfortable. They shouldn't, they shouldn't be offended or intimidated or fear. Nothing, nothing uncomfortable. Well, here, they won't even be around the Christians. They respect them, but I don't want to be with them because we know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. We don't want that to happen to us. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we have this summary statement. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So then we all need to be growing in the fear of the Lord. So how do we do it? I don't know. We're done. No. Letter D. Very practically, application-oriented, let's talk about the nurture of the fear of the Lord. Neglect, nature, necessity, now nurture. How do you grow in the fear of the Lord? I've got really good news for you, really great news. God does this in us, and here's how he does it. Read, meditate upon, and delight in his word, and you will grow in the fear of the Lord. That's his promise. That's what the word of God does. Wouldn't we expect that anything our heavenly father requires of us, he's going to tell us, he's going to equip us, he's going to empower us to do it. Just like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable to teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Isn't it great to know we're not going to get to heaven and find out God expected something of us that he didn't even tell us about, and he didn't even prepare us for, and he didn't equip us to do. There's no such thing. He makes us, through the word, adequate, equipped for every good work. And specifically, listen to Psalm 119.38. The psalmist says, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. See, the word of God produces reverence in us. The fear of the Lord. Read the word, meditate, delight in it. It produces the fear of the Lord. So much so that in Psalm 19, when scripture is characterized, one of the titles of scripture is the fear of the Lord. Now, why would God do that? Well, because he's telling us what scripture produces. Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So the fear of the Lord, that's a description of scripture based on what it fosters in us. So isn't that good to know that as you read the word of God and meditate on it and it lives within you, it is going to produce in you the fear of the Lord. It will happen. 
as a work of God. How else do I nurture the fear of the Lord? Secondly, no big, overwhelming, gotcha, that was an incredible point. Number two is very simple. Pray that God would develop this in you. Well, I could have written that sermon. You could have. I, I, I told you I'm a plumber, right? Okay, Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I want to ask you to pray that right now. I'm going to read it again and just make it your prayer. Ask God in Christ to do this work in you. Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. See, isn't that better than sitting in a sermon feeling guilty, thinking, man, I am falling so far short of this. What do you do? Well, just start praying. Lord, yes, I need to grow in this area. Would you please produce in me the fear of the Lord? How do I develop and grow in the fear of the Lord? Point three. This is kind of a longer one. Think much on God as the creator of all, as the savior of sinners through the gospel, and as the judge of the unrepentant wicked. I know I threw it all. I gave you an easy point and then a really long one. Think much on God as the creator of all, as the savior of sinners through the gospel, and as the judge of the unrepentant wicked. And a few passages that come to mind. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Think on him as glorious, almighty, all wise, the all sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And I literally encourage you to just get out into creation. And sometimes you've got to get out of the area. We were in Arizona and recently, wow, you could actually see stars, you know. You get out. I grew up in L.A. There are stars if you get out of the city. Look at the stars. Look at the clouds. Look at the mountains. Go to the beach. Visit Yosemite. Do what I finally did at the age of 56. I'm ashamed to say this. I grew up in California. I have never been to the Grand Canyon before this summer. And I'll tell you, at the end of that, when Donna and I drove along and stopped probably 20 times, I felt staggered and overwhelmed, really, like I had been on too many roller coaster rides. I mean it. It was just like you're standing there and you're looking a mile down. And I thought to myself, it's really good to feel puny and insignificant because we think we're so great. And this is just a hole in the ground on a little ball of dirt, planet Earth. And this planet is so dinky compared to our sun, which is so dinky compared to much larger suns and the vastness of the universe. And here I am, a little puny nothing. See God's power and majesty that would lead to the fear of the Lord. Think of... Natural disasters, so-called, that you've been a part of, acts of providence. How did you feel in that last little shakeup that we had, right? I mean, isn't it a weird thing to know that terra firma is not terra firma, and everything is shaking, and where are you, Tom Dowd? Over $2 billion damage at China Lake, right? Isn't that what you said? Okay, so we didn't hardly feel it. 
fact, I was pretty bad. I just stayed in the chair, and Donna and the kids got under the table. Daddy, you going to come under? Well, I'm thinking about it, you know. It, it wasn't like I remember, right? Even the aftershocks of the Northridge earthquake were worse than that, but not in China Lake, right? So think of things like that that you've been through. Maybe you've been through a tornado or a hurricane or whatever it might be. Remember the fires coming through and these acts of God literally in his providence They should remind us of the greatness of God. Think on all that he's done for you in Christ and the glorious gospel that it might promote in you the fear of the Lord. Think on his mighty judgments like here in Revelation. Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah's flood, the Noahic worldwide flood. God covered the ground that we're on with water. The whole world was covered with water. Everything died except every land, air breather, died except the people and the animals on the flood. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt and the judgment on the false gods with the 10 plagues. And think on how he spared you from eternal hell in Christ that it might promote the fear of the Lord. How else can we develop and mature in the fear of the Lord? Point four, seek wisdom diligently. I mean, that's the message of the book of Proverbs Seek wisdom, seek skillful living. The early chapters again and again, we're in chapter six as a family. I don't know how many times our Phillips family has gone through the book of Proverbs now. I know James was little and he just turned 30 this year. And if you seek wisdom, you will discern the fear of the Lord. So look with me at Proverbs chapter two. The very next chapter, one to six. My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. If you pursue wisdom, look what you get. You discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So pursue wisdom. Seek wisdom diligently. Fifth, humbly trust the Lord in everything and turn from evil. Humbly trust the Lord in everything and turn from evil. That's how you will grow in the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3 Five through seven, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 16, 6, the second half by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. And then number six, Regularly praise the Lord, live for his glory, and worship him in everything, and you will fear the Lord. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-three: 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him, glorify him, and stand in awe of him. Amen. I got a question for you. Are you a God-fearing man? We don't, even, we don't even talk like that anymore, isn't that true? Has anyone ever asked you that question? If they did, maybe they'd say it like this, are you a God-fearing man? You know, we don't, even, we don't even talk like that. It's an older expression, God-fearer. But it should be revived. Are you a God-fearing woman? God-fearer. 
A young man who's a God-fearer, a young woman who's a God-fearer, a student who is a God-fearer. I end with a summarizing quote. It's from Robert Layton. The fear here recommended is a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God, which may not only consist with assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and spiritual joy, but is their inseparable companion. This fear is not cowardice. It doth not debase, but elevates the mind, for it drowns all lower fears and begets true fortitude and courage to encounter all dangers for the sake of good conscience and the obeying of God. And so I end with this. Embrace this biblical fear of the Lord. Grab hold of it. The fear that drowns out all lower and lesser fears. And I say to you tonight, then trade fear for fear. Trade fear for fear. Unworthy fears for this holy fear. The fear of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, who would not fear you? The great and mighty God who speaks and nothing becomes something. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, you said, let there be light and there was light. And you spoke again and again in the six days of creation and nothingness became a universe became all of the beauty and order and design that's all around us, even though now marked by sin. Yet nonetheless, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We look around and we see your attributes on display, your eternality, your wisdom, your intelligence and power, (coughs) your beauty. As we think of you upholding all things by the word of your power, Lord Jesus, truly you are worthy of praise and adoration. And we thank you, Father, that you've delivered us from a cringing fear. We do not fear that you will cast us into hell, though we know we deserve it. And that's because you loved us in Christ and in your love for us. You did not spare your own son, but you delivered him over for us all. You sent Jesus Christ the sinless one, the just one, into this world to die for us, the unjust, to bring us to you so that you're not a distant God. You're our Father. We're members of your very household. We're children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so there is not, indeed, that cringing fear, but there is that reverence and that submission and that worship. And we grow in our respect and our admiration and our love and our worship as we learn your ways and know you better. And so I pray for us that uh, your word, as it promises, would produce in us, increasingly as the people of God, the fear of the Lord. That all the praise and honor and reverence and awe would go to you, great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.